This is Radiance Tape Number JD-127, a message entitled, Child Raising. In this first of two tapes, Jim Durkin speaks about the basic attitudes we should teach our children. Okay, now, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, help our hearts now to be open to the Word of God and to examine some of these things in the best light of what we can, Father considering where we are, what you can do to us through your Spirit, do in us now. Lord, help us to be as comfortable as we can with each other. Help me, Lord. I have problems in these areas, too. And um, when we finish this day together, Lord, let our hearts and minds be in an enlarged place as a result of our time together, Father. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's assume that we have problems in three areas. One, they are problems that we have in marriage. Two people get married. Sometimes that marriage has happy moments, sometimes unhappy moments. Sometimes we even reflect on the wisdom of us ever getting married, and other times we say, well, it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. We go through various changes of ideas about that. So we have problems with the marriage situation. Second thing, it's a kind of a marriage problem, but it's a more specific area which is brought up again and again. <laughs> what about the sexual relationship? Now, this problem is not unique to Christians, unique to sinners. It is unique to people. It's everywhere evident. Uh, I will explain why I think some of these things are so later on, and then we can discuss what you feel about that. And the third thing is the area of child raising. Now, I personally think that many of the marriage problems are nothing more than hangovers from improperly being raised. Uh, therefore, I think it is very important for us to understand the raising of children for two reasons. One we can see how to gradually correct our own problems, and two, we can see how not to put the same problems into our children so that those problems will continue again and again and again. Now, so I'm going to deal with the area of raising children first and deal with some of the areas that happen there, and then maybe we can have a better understanding of ourselves as grown human beings. Now, I said, what are the general problems of sex and marriage caused by? See, what are they caused by? Well, I said, one, improper raising. We just simply were not raised right. We fought funny attitudes and ideas come into our minds. Then they continue because of misunderstanding about those ideas, a lack of knowledge, the Bible says my people are destroyed for want of knowledge. They just simply don't know. Shame, and because they're ashamed, they don't search it out. They can't talk about it. Ego, many times with the men, you know, don't want anybody ever talking about this, because the idea that a man wouldn't be a master in every area of sex, especially, is very shaming to him as a man not be shaming at all. It's no more an area than any other area is. And fears that come as a result of that. We're going to be 
put out of the ministry. We are going to be uh, looked down upon. We are going to be whatever else comes in there. Now, I put some general things about sex and marriage. One, I said that sex must be viewed as a natural function and not something humans do because of their fallen nature. Secondly, the Bible makes no differentiation. It does not deal with sex in a positive sense. In other words, it doesn't say, here's how much people should have sexual relationships with each other or how little. It doesn't say, here's how they should carry on sex or how they should not, except in certain areas of incest, in other words. But it says, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. Now this says to me, assuming that very strong taboos were not put on us in certain areas, that there is a wider range of sexual expression than many people are able to give ear or heed to simply because their minds are trained into certain avenues of thinking that this is right, this is wrong, this is right. I say, where did these ideas come from if they didn't come from the Bible? Where did they come from? Well, obviously the only place they could have come from, you heard them someplace. This is wrong, this is right, this is wrong, this is right, this is right, so forth and so on. See, now certain segments of the Jewish peoples were taught that sex was first taught to Adam by Lilith, who was in the Garden of Eden before Eve was. And she was a fallen creature, a woman. She fell and she taught Adam how to have sexual intercourse. And that's the beginning of it. Therefore, it is not a good thing, and people should only have sexual intercourse if they wish to have children and at no other time, so on and so on. So see, this problem of dealing with sex in a negative sense is very, very old type of thing. Now, among certain sects of the Indians, same idea is taught. They should only have a sexual <laughs> intercourse relationship when you wish to have a children and then stop. You know, that type, abstinence being the rule. But I say once again, you do not find this in the Word of God. There's nothing like that at all. Okay. Sex is a natural function. It is as natural as, and here's the point that I'm going to make here. Some areas of uncomfortableness are with us because of taboos on improper sexual relationships. Now, not that that should have produced hang-ups in us. But normally speaking, we, like our parents, react to abnormal sexual relationships that we should see in children, let's say, or even thoughts about them, in far more emotional ways than we should, rather than spiritual ways. See, it is wrong, these things, but suppose, let's say, take the case of myself overeating, which I still have a battle with that. Less and less all the time, still it's there, and I have to deal with it. Suppose now, in the matter of overeating, I, my parents, whenever I overate anything, instead of dealing with me properly, which they never dealt with me, they told me, go ahead and eat, 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 you know, clean up your plate, make sure you eat more, and so forth. They dealt completely. But let's say that I'm trying to deal with my children that. Suppose I see them overeat something. Instead of saying for them to stop, making sure they do stop, 
instructing them as to why they should stop. In other words, leading them toward a proper thing because of their age level. Suppose I throw my hands back and I scream and yell and say, my God, you're killing me. You're, you're just destroying me. It's a shame that you're bringing upon me. Oh, don't you know what God will do to you? See, can you see the weird attitude they get? Well, see, all I did was because they don't understand the nature of what they have done is so bad. See, you're looking ahead and seeing where it can lead to. They didn't see that at all. They don't understand the moral consequences of that action at that particular point of time. And yet here we say, no, what you do when you say, well, now, you shouldn't overeat because, and then gradually you tame their appetite down to a proper place. But say eating is a good thing in its right, right connection, so forth and so on. See, well, now it's the same thing with sex. There's a certain area of sexual expression that the Bible says, this is wrong. Do not do it, even under penalty of death. All right. There are whole areas of like that. Say, for instance, hating your brother. He, ever, he, he that hates his brother is a murderer. All right. So we've got to train our children because they'll come to the place where they say, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. All right. Now, can you see what he says? That's wrong. We do not express ourselves that way. It is improper. It is, see, and carefully you guide him out of that channel of behavior into a right channel of behavior. All right. Now, if he insists on doing it, then you have to use whatever means the scripture gives you to use to insist that he turn into that proper channel of behavior. And the word is you have the right to insist and enforce that he turn into that proper channel of behavior. But I'm saying once again, the question is whether we are correcting them and bringing into play in the child's life in the light of an overall goal toward which we are moving the child, or whether we are merely correcting the child because we have been outraged, and we are shamed, and we are frightened, and we are, which is not a way to correct a child at all. Now, most of us have been corrected, just as it says in the book of Hebrews, it says, the father of lights chastens us for our own good. But it says our fathers chastened us for their pleasure. Now, you follow the difference there? Now, it says we were in subjection to the, our fathers, but they chastened us for their pleasure. But what does God chasten us for? For our good. His pleasure also. But the primary aim is for our good. All right. But our fathers, see, referring to that, primarily chastened us for their own pleasure. In other words... This bugs me, so I'm going to make sure you don't do that, so I am, I'm safe in this particular area. All right. Now, in trying to guide our children right, we can put wrong ideas in their minds and deeper than their minds into the very deep part of their emotional being, into their spirits, and those ideas will affect their marriage, just like the ideas that you carry from your childhood affect your marriage. Now, I'll give you an example of this, I think is, to me it's clear, I hope it is to you. That a person may learn to speak, let's say, he's raised in Chicago, take myself. So therefore, I grow up with a Chicago accent. I never think of anything else than having a Chicago accent, because I don't even think about it as an accent, it's just the way you speak there. Everyone speaks that way. That is in that area of Chicago, anyhow. All right, now, 
you come out of Chicago and people kid you about your accent and they say you've got this back. So if you need to change, in other words, your business idea, relationships or something, you begin to practice a different way of enunciating your words and a different way of pronouncing and a different way of speech patterns. <laughs> and pretty soon you get where when you're speaking, you, you have a very modulated, fine speaking voice. You, instead of a twang, you get a proper release of air through your vocal cords and so forth. But tell me, what happens if you become extremely excited, extremely frightened, or maybe you're wounded and you're dying? What will happen to your voice patterns? That's right. They'll revert exactly back to those childhood patterns you learned. Just see, because it still lays there. What was in there is there. Now, those attitudes then, which were inculcated into your mind, your emotions, your spirit as children, unless God removes them, that's the ones by which you operate. That's the real thing by which you judge and look at life. Even though your mind... See, that's why sometimes a person can say, logically, I should not eat this much food. Logically, I should not act this way. Logically, I should... And yet I tell you, something inside says, eat, eat, eat. Or do that, do that, do that. And though you may fight it for a time, you will find again and again, unless God changes you inside, you will disregard logic and you will act upon that deep inner voice, which is in many cases, hearkening back once again to your childhood, your mother or your father or your grandmother or your grandfather or your teacher or the society saying, Clean up everything on that plate. Eat everything off that plate. It is wrong for you not to. Make sure you eat so that you're healthy. This is what makes a healthy child that you... And though your mind says, that's ridiculous. Yet something down inside says, and it's there. See now, many times that's why we finally, in raising children find out we raise children, though we despise the way our parents raised us in many cases, we in fact revert right back to raising our children as exactly as our parents raised us, unless God changes us inside. See, we do go right back. I was amazed. My father yelling at me, bawling me out the top of his voice, hitting me with the back of his hand. See, what a man. Never do that, though he died when I was five, but I can remember those things. And yet, when I was raising my own, and I got excited, guess what happened? <laughs> what happened there? Logically, well, of course what happened? I hadn't changed inside, so I was still there. See? Now, if we can see, therefore, that many of our attitudes then toward marriage and toward sex and toward children are really childish attitudes which have never been changed in us. If we had had the right kind of attitudes put into us in the beginning, 
then those right attitudes would have carried right on through life because they would have been right from the beginning, and therefore going into marriage would have been very mature attitudes. They, they would have been right attitudes from a childish point of view, but they would have matured simply with greater and greater understanding, and then as we come into marriage, we would have had a fully mature point of view. But once attitudes are this way, and then to say, those attitudes are completely wrong, we're going to throw them out and substitute a whole new set of attitudes, extremely difficult to do. It takes the miracle working power of God to produce those attitudinal changes. Now, thank God, they can be changed, but it's not easy. You have to, first of all, admit that's what the problem is. See, confess your sins and your faults. I think that word uses faults very interestingly there. It doesn't mean sins like in the evilest sense of the word, but those weaknesses, shortcomings, confess them one to another. Pray one for another that you may be healed. A lot of us carry into our adulthood nothing but childish attitudes which we cover up with sophistries, but in fact they're very, very childish things. And almost when we see it in each other, we almost feel sometimes like saying, quit acting like a child. Because we recognize that it's totally... And yet, what are we very likely to do in reverse under similar circumstances? Act like a child. See? Okay. Sulk, mad, feelings hurt, eat worms, die, same, same experiences exactly. And yet we now say we are grown up, whereas in fact many areas we are not grown up at all. Attitudes about husbands or wives come from our own distorted childhood views of life. Now, sometimes a mother will say to a little girl, the mother has just been soundly blasted by the husband. So she's weeping, and the little girl comes up to the mother and, Oh, Mama, don't cry. And the mother says, oh, All men are beasts. They're all beasts. They're terrible. I wish I never got married to your father. There's this little child. They're beasts. Well, let me tell you something. That thought doesn't come out of that little girl. Like, the mother's going to forget it after a while. Not really forget it. Because in her, too. But she's going to kind of get it back in perspective and say, well, part of the time he's okay. But the girl heard something else. Highly emotionally charged, frightened, trauma. And she heard this terrible thing, see? Okay. Now, the same happens on the side of the men. See? Different, different types of things. Maybe the man comes in. I'm talking about in its extreme sense. But it's happened also among Christians, so I don't think it's so extreme. That the man will come in. He's really angry at the wife and say, You women are all alike, you bunch of takers. You never give anything. You just do nothing but take, take, take. I'm sick of you. I've had it out to here. I'm going to leave you, you filthy. They say, Oh, none of us would ever do that, would they? <clears throat> I hope not. But many Christians have dealt exactly like that with their spouses in periods of extreme anger. Then later on they say, Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, honey, it's all words. Okay, we say, uh, uh, okay, I forgive you too, and so But here's this little five-year-old, four-year-old, three-year-old, six-year-old. That's in there. Now, you say, oh, well, that's going to come out when he's 15. That isn't going to come out when he's 50, unless God takes it out. Say, okay. Mature human sexual expression is aroused sometime around 12 years of age. 
Now, I did not say they were mature, but I mean that form of sexual expression. See, the sexual expression happens much earlier than that. It can happen two years, three years, four years. There's different types of sexual phases that people pass through. And uh, I don't know how much to go into that. It's, well, why not? You'll find children exploring themselves. They'll run their hands down in their, their diapers or their pants. They'll feel themselves. If you've got brother and sister, they will be exploring each other and so forth and so on. And all kinds of odd things are going on between children. Now, you see this taking place, and the next thing that can happen sometimes is you see it, and as I explained earlier, you become extremely enraged, emotional, frightened, shamed that somebody might have come in other than you and seen this thing taking place. And the next thing you think, wow, look at that. Joe Smith's children are. See, and you're thinking, what would be here? I'm, in, now, I'm speaking especially of you. Now, you're going to have to adapt this if you're dealing with Christians and teaching to where they are. I'm saying especially of you. We're ministries. We're in the ministry. What? What feeling? would we have now let's try and I don't know if you want to speak about it yet but I, here I hope we do get to this place openly what feeling do you think we would be likely to have if you and another sister or you and a brother walked into a room where something like this was taking place child four and five years old what what would your feelings be your children and somebody outside of your family what will your feelings be now let me ask this question first would they be likely toward the child in the sense of what must I do to help my child what must I do to discipline my child what must I do to lead him along the right path or her along the right path or the brother and sister here right you know what must I do or would the immediate thought be looking at this person what do they think? What do they feel? Oh, you! What will be the the feel? You might be surprised at how lucid everything would become in that moment, and you'd be wondering greatly, what do they think of me? What will the whole world think of me? About ten minutes after that person gets away from me this afternoon, what will will I ever be able to hold up my head again in public? When the word begins to get around of what my child has been doing, oh me, oh my, right? But the real thought should have been, where? That's right, toward the child. It's a disciplinary problem. It's an instructional problem. They are not twisted. They are not demonic. They are not evil-intentioned at that age. Now, they might be later on. But if you train them right, they won't be later on either. So you train a child in the way he's always old, he's not depart from it. But the problem is disciplinary and instructional. If we all understood each other in those areas, we, we would have that freedom. But our whole thought would be, they, now, that is not calculated to bring about good discipline or instruction to the child. We immediately now, having been shamed, having been put to, loss of face we almost feel like we're rushing in there and grabbing this out and beating the daylights out of them and uh or making excuses to try and cover the whole thing over which is not good either it must be dealt with 
this must be dealt with, but mainly we must be dealt with. All right, so I'm saying attitudes about husbands or wives come from our own distorted childhood views of life, and that's also true in dealing with our children. I'm saying this area, if we found something improper, I say mature human sexual expressions aroused sometime around 12 years of age, maybe a little earlier, a little later, doesn't matter. Because so much talk and display, children experiment much earlier, but this is a curiosity-only type of thing. They're not engaged in serious sexual practices, that is in the sense of uh, climax, uh, climactic type of things. This must be stopped, but the real problem is that instead of parents being able to deal with it as a disciplinary and instructional problem, we may be outraged or feel our child has shamed us or the child is demonic or that they are twisted and react improperly. And here's the way we could react, by yelling, bad faith pictures, you little monster, you filthy little all types of words like that. Bad faith, beating, weeping on our own part, unreasonable punishments. I'll never let you play with another child on this block for six months. You can't ever go out of this house again. And... Well, now, in fact, you are not going to enforce any type thing like that. But the child heard you say that. And then what happens the next day or two days, three days later when you let it go out? Your word has lost credibility. You did not, in fact, discipline the child. You merely vented your own feelings. I think as we begin to deal with this area of attitudes, and that's the thing that I'm going to work at here, when we talk about the broad picture, see, every one of these things, like what I brought up, we covered in this larger thing of attitudes. <clears throat> we deal with them piecemeal. See, we can recognize a problem. You say, how do you deal with a problem? Well, actually, it's very difficult to deal with the single problem. That's the way we like to deal with things. You know, and I like to deal. But until you understand the whole picture, it's very difficult to deal with the problem because you don't know where you're, what are you trying to solve for. It's like when we, in mathematics, you always had to know what you were trying to solve for before you could set up an equation to solve anything. You knew how to manipulate the algebraic terms. You'd learn that. But the setting up the equation depended on knowing where you were going in the first place. So, like a question you're asking is one of, once again, parental attitude and the attitudes we place in the children. See, they develop attitudes. Okay. And that's what I'm going to deal with, is I'm going to aim to show why right attitudes must be put in children. I'm going to show you the many areas in which right attitudes must be developed. Now, if these right attitudes are not put there, it will be very difficult to overcome those improper responses in later life. Scripture, train up a child in the way he should go. Right attitudes, right responses to life. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. But train him up wrong, and he's just going to have a terrible time ever getting his life straight. Which brings me to the next point, this one. The cause of most Christian frustration, and maybe all of it, but at least most of it, the nerves and fears that we go through, I'm frustrated, I'm nervous, I'm upset, I'm frightened. 
are the result of internal and external warfare to have right attitudes. So, you know, here's the problem. The scripture says this is the way you should be. But my whole training has been different than that. I don't, in fact, feel that way, way down inside my emotional gut. I don't think that way down inside the deepest part of my mind. My spirit feels that. Now there's war. See? If I am raised not to have respect for other people's property, then the scripture brings along that I should have respect for other people's property. But in fact, there's warfare. My mind is saying, you must do that. My conscience is beginning to say, you must do that. I read the word of God. But some other area says, that. And I'm in a, a place of terrible frustration. I'm unhappy. I'm miserable. Because I really, some would say, oh, man. See, now, what's that song written years ago? Say, so you always hurt the one you love, the one you shouldn't hurt at all. We now undergo all of these frustrations and pains. We're kind of this bundle of all these things here. Now, basically, you know certain places you cannot let yourself go. Now, see, I'm sorry, the guy said, man, I just say anything comes to my mind to anybody. Nobody stops me at all. That's just not true. There's whole areas we know that we do not. For instance, you don't go up to the cop on the street corner, say, you miserable, dumb fuzz, I'm going to spit right in your face. Now, you don't do that. See? You may feel like doing that on occasion, so you're in some where in your life, but in fact, you do not do that. Why do you not do that? Because he immediately takes very violent action toward you, you are handcuffed, you are dragged in a car, you are hauled down, the judge gives you 30 days or a $1,000 fine, they're warning you. So you say, well, I better not do that the next time. See? Okay. Now, your boss, he comes out and says, and Durkin, today I want you to get on the ball and produce or else there's a hundred guys waiting for your job. Yes, sir, Mr. Jones, I'm going to produce because I love this job. Ooh. See? All right, now, I'm extreme. Maybe we would say something, maybe say, it's not proper you speak to me like our mate, but we also might get fired. Now, we need the job real bad. We, But the Bible is saying, don't be a man pleaser. Give real service to that boss. Treat him like you work for him, like you work for God. That's what the Bible says. But this guy just gave me a hard time, and I feel like I'd like to bust his face in for him. See? But I can't do that. I need that job. I need that salary. I need that income. The word is, okay, okay. But there is one place where I have a greater chance of getting away with my mouth. Where is that place? At home. That's right. With my wife and especially with my children. Now, of course, I can't say, the boss balled me out today, so I'm going to beat you up, little Johnny. I can't really say that, can I? But I can at some point get very righteous and very indignant and say, no son of mine is going to act like that in my presence. You know, the guy, what do he do? He did some little thing. All right. Now, 
Those are all the results of my wrong attitudes which my parents stuck in me. And I'm stuck with them unless God changes me. All right, now God is changing me. Thank the Lord for that. But still, every once in a while, I find things cropping up in me that are not worthy of me as a son of God. You ever find anything like that in yourself? You've got to weigh those things. Okay. Now, these attitudes, then, that I'm going to be talking about have to be put in children, and that's where we are aiming our children toward. I am not aiming my child at just giving me pleasure. I'm disciplining my child for God's pleasure. I'm aiming the child towards something far more important than the fact that he pleases me at every moment. Although, in fact, when I get into where he pleases God, he will, in fact, please me too. Okay. Now, that's exactly what God is trying to do with us, by the way. Okay. So now I'm going to deal with some of these attitudes. Now, I'd like to add a point here, and we'll see it from the Scripture, but I'd like to just state it first, that two things are necessary to produce in children mature, proper attitudes toward life. One, they must be instructed in what those attitudes are. Simply at first, because they can't understand very much, they need to be repeated again and again over many, many years, because you're enlarging continually on these concepts in their mind as they're able to grasp. But the second thing, instruction must be enforced by discipline. Now, the child must be made to do the thing that you tell him is right. Now, I'm going to explain there is another way of approaching a child which is a totally wrong way. Where you do not enforce discipline, you merely just reason with the child. Where you constantly reason with the child and try to talk him into doing it. Now, he is therefore not doing it because it is right. He, in fact, does not do it until he agrees to do it. See? Not discipline. You are merely talking him into. Well, at some point in life, if he reasonably, and I tell you, the mind can reason itself into something, reason itself out of something, reason itself into a whole different, just back and forth like this, whatever happens to be the blowing wind of doctrine at the time, the child's morals will change if reasonableness is the basis of doing rather than rightness. See, right is something which is deep in the person who says, this is right. See, even when the person then is tempted and the person says, see, I can prove to you reasonably why adultery is not wrong. I can prove it to you. I know I could. See, as a matter of fact, a lot of women get it proved to them every year, don't they? Don't a lot of young girls get it proved why fornication is not wrong? They get it proved. A lot of young men get approved to them why taking drugs or getting drunk is not wrong. See, you can reasonably show people why that's okay. See, it's just a different set of... Because the mind is not reasonable, it's basically emotional, and it moves back and forth between these according to who's doing the reasoning at the period of time. But if something way down inside of your being says, that's wrong, 
it's been trained into your conscience and your conscience says that's wrong you'll flee from it rather than do it even though somebody is inducing you you say let me out of here and you'll run from it flee youthful lust that's got to be inculcated deep all right now let me deal with these attitudes I've made a point here which I wish to expand on later the difference between reasonableness and rightness as a basis for instruction reasonableness alone now notice what I said not reasonableness you have every obligation to lay a good intellectual foundation into your child as well as an emotional one a spiritual one but I'm saying that the intellectual thing can be challenged again and again people can reason you in and reason you out what you need then when the child is being pressed out of measure intellectually you need something way down inside of him which says this is right don't swerve from it and that's got to be inculcated it is not something that ever comes as a result of him saying oh i see that daddy yes i see that because next week he may not see it at all he said well yeah i know that but that's old-fashioned now we you know you need something way down inside that says that's right and I can't change say okay now what we're trying to do then is put right attitudes and eliminate wrong ones okay and did you also get the point that I made if the wrong attitudes are the ones that are really down there and then right attitudes come to you from what the Word of God says should be true but in fact they have not worked in you yet as an adult I'm talking about you see the struggles then that we now have it's just like trying to put on a good accent or a good speech pattern when in fact way down inside the Chicago slur is there. And the minute that we get a little bit excited, say, hey, where'd that come from? Well, of course, it's down there all the time. See, you just merely covered it up and say, I'm trying to do the right thing here. See, that's why I'm saying we need to be changed inside. Always. Now I'm talking about the adult. I'm still trying to work from the point of view of the child. You have the opportunity to put the right attitude into your growing children now. If you do not, it's going to take a whole lot of work later, the Holy Spirit, to change those attitudes later. So you owe every responsibility to your child to do it. However, on the other hand, I wish to tell you that many of your problems in sex, marriage, attitudes toward children, attitudes toward authority, attitudes toward life, are the result of the attitudes that have been put in you, which you now in many cases are ashamed of you no longer want those attitudes you say I know that's wrong what comes after that I know that's wrong what's the next word but but, but I feel am I, am I just sure that's what you're saying you say I know that's wrong I know that's wrong but still I feel this way See, that's what you're really saying that attitude is way down in there and it comes up and it just tries to control your whole and that's the frustration you feel now that frustration is just like this sometimes you get home and here's the trouble in marriage because you're trying to release that and of course thank God for the grace that exists on our home but we understood that a little bit we begin to work on the attitude and not on each other see that's where the problem is we we blast each other instead of working on the attitude all right so now here's some questions that i have for you and we'll deal with these from the word of god there should be inculcated in the child an attitude toward god 
how does a child see God? Does he see his parents as God? Yeah, that's kind of the way a very young child thinks about it. Even though you say, well, no, that that's not so. God is there and this is your daddy. God is there and this is your mother. But it's very hard for him to distinguish or her to distinguish very young in life. That's, that's God, see. Even though you say they're different, yet, like, well, my daddy is like God and God's like my daddy. Now I ask a second question. Does he see the elders as God? Depends on what you say about those elders. Does he see old men as God? Depends on what you train the child about old men. Oh, granddad, you know, <laughs> he's nice, but he's kind of off his... You better, it's all right, little Johnny. You know, put up with him while he's here. He'll be gone in a week. <laughs> That's right, see? Okay, the child has... Yeah. <laughs> see? Oh, the elders. Now, listen, when the elders come here, Johnny, boy, I mean, you get on your toes, little kid, because I'll whack your little seat. And if you don't, I when they're here, I want you to act nice, because they're gone. Okay. Okay, then God is some kind of a monster who comes... And when God's there, you better do good. And when God's gone, you can do anything you want. Right? That's an attitude. Now, can you see how he could reason in his mind that way? See his reasoning? It's very clear to him. See? All right, now. When father goes to work, the mother says to the child, Oh, little Johnny, I can't do a thing with you. You just drive me crazy. You and your father gets home, he'll get you. All right, now, what did you just tell the child? You told him, oh, did you ever tell it to him loud and clear? What did you tell him? That's right. You told him, Daddy's a monster. He's off somewhere right now, getting all charged up. I can't do anything with you myself. When I'm with you, you can do anything you want because I can't control you. But when he gets home, he's going to beat you. Okay? Now, what's your attitude about God? I want you to get out and pray to God. Don't come down here, God. Uh, that's right. See, instead of the happy relationship, now I'll show you a little bit later how to bring about some of those. We'll go back over these, but I want to show the attitudes that have to be put there. So there has to be a right attitude toward father and mother, a right attitude toward eldership authority, a right attitude toward aged men, because they all are very similar in a child's mind. You cannot make distinctions very clearly. So the first attitude that has to come into a child is this one. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. There must be a healthy, awesome respect for God, for parents, for elders, for the aged, and all that that entails. Question. How is that brought about in the child's mind? How is that brought about in the child's mind? Someone want to take a chance? Pardon me? That's right. If they're... Long before the child can ever speak or communicate in any reasonable way at all, the child can feel and sense and experience attitudes in the parents toward life itself. If your attitude toward each other is bad, 
the child senses something is not right. He doesn't know what's not right. If the role is turned around where the father and the mother are reversed in their roles, the child is just, he doesn't know what his place is. If as he's growing up, he senses when someone knocks on the door, before that time is just this way, who's that? Looks out the door, huh? That's, that's the preacher. Child. That's right. I've seen many, many homes exactly like that. Just, you could walk in and you could feel at that moment you walked in, see? There's our have another, we, call, we do what we call making the rounds. And we would call on somebody just almost unexpectedly sometimes. It wasn't to catch them off guard, but just we drop by. Hi, you there? And boy, sometimes you walked into like, <clears throat> see? Now, the child here, he, he can't judge what's going on. See, maybe the parents were actually snapping at each other, or they were saying something, or they were doing something, or they were carrying on in some way. Now they... Now the child picks that attitude up. Now, it's not the right attitude. Now, what is the attitude that should be there? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. A right attitude toward God. Because the father and mother have a right attitude toward God. Not a fearful attitude toward God. How many of you heard that? Not a fearful attitude, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, let me read an interesting scripture. Well, I want to carry this on and show you how carefully these two things are connected. Leviticus 19.3, Let every man fear his mother and his father. Now, what do you think that means? Be frightened of your father, be frightened of your mother. No, it means there needs to be inculcated very early in that child a sense of, now today, the word is, be a friend to your child. That's not quite correct. It is, I think, probably impossible to inculcate until the child is very mature. See, let me put two things before you. I fear God. Now, I'm not fearful of God. I don't think God's going to kill me, and he's not angry at me, and he's not, but I fear God. Now, Jesus Christ, I fear him. See? But I'm not fearful of him. He is, he's my Savior, he's my, but I fear him. He can act with terrible force if he has to, to bring us into line. Yet the Bible says, I call you no longer servants, but friends. Or I call you no longer slaves, but friends. All right, now tell me. Is it compatible except in a very mature mind, think of your own thought processes, is it compatible except in a mature mind to understand friendship the way we understand it in the world? A friend is a guy that always loves you, and a friend's a guy that always treats you nice, and a friend's a guy you like to be around, a friend's a guy. And this other side of Jesus, which is a fearsome, terrible, moving person, that can chasten us and bring us in the line and break us and see are the two things compatible in less than a mature mind well I think they are not 
I think that in our minds, I think of Jesus as, yes, I want to be your friend. And he is my friend in the sense I know he's my friend. But I know the stuff that goes on inside of me, too. And I know that he does not like that kind of stuff. And I know he knows that kind of stuff. And I know he wants it out of me. And therefore, in one sense, I'm kind of uncomfortable at times in his presence. Now, are you able to follow what I'm saying? See, there's, there's two attitudes. And except to the very mature, they're almost like two opposite things. Now, tell me, how many friends do you know that pick you up, turn you over their knee, and spank you? My friend doesn't do that, does he? Friends say, well, uh, uh, well, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, I see what you're saying there, Jim. Uh, you know, maybe I don't agree with you completely, but I mean, after all, I'm your friend if you see to do it. See, that's the way friends in the world are, kind of like permissive. That's what makes friendship possible in the world. You have common goals and ideas, and you talk together, and you kind of let each other... But Jesus doesn't let us do things that are wrong. At some point he says, no. Well, Jesus, I thought you were my friend. I am your friend once you understand friendship. But you cannot do that. Well, I think I'll do it anyhow. Then I want you to understand that I'm also your Lord and your Savior and your judge. And I'm going to judge you now, lest you be judged with the world when it is judged. Boom! And here we find ourselves broken. Oh, man. See, the two attitudes are compatible, but not to an immature mind. All right, now one attitude must be put in the child at all costs. The one that must be there is the fear of the Lord, because that's the beginning of knowledge. He's never going to know anything if he doesn't really have that honest fear of the Lord. He's got to have that one. Now, if he doesn't have it, because he doesn't fear his father and his mother, see, now that's why the Bible says, fear every man, his mother and father. That's Leviticus 19.3, by the way. Now it goes on to something even more particular, which in this generation is almost looked at as the ridiculous. But let me read it to you and just see how you respond to it. Thou shalt rise up before the hoary head and honor the face of the old man. Now, what do you think about that? Now, let's just, let's weigh it in light of our society, weigh it in the light of the way we've been raised, and weigh it in the light of society, say, 50 years ago. Have there been some basic changes in the social structure of how the young or children view respect toward, first of all, the aged, because I'm specifically this is mentioning very important that that be inculcated in the child. But let's go a step further that in many cases the child has no respect for anyone who does not happen to fit into its particular pattern. Okay, let me read that again. Fear every man his mother and father. Now, of course, this is to lead the way to honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. In the New Testament, it says this is the first commandment with promise. Still extending, see? All right? So he says, children, honor your father and your mother. Obey them. This is right in the Lord. See? In other words, that reverential fear is to be put there. Now, if it is not, then it's going to be impossible for him unless some miracle of conversion takes place somewhere down the line, quite apart from you training the child up in the way it should go, quite apart from that, some miracle of conversion. 
But if you have put this attitude in the child, then he is able to hear the rest of God's knowledge. Now, do you understand that principle? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. See, without that, there can be no hearing God's knowledge. You don't, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to you. You have no sense of respect. You have no sense of awe. You have no sense of saying, this is to be heard. The only thing that is to be heard is what you can get away with. Like Steve said, what he could get away with, he got away with. He pushed that off. He was amazed. Nobody did anything. Somebody should have done something. But they did not do anything. So then you lose sense of fear of that. I better do this because this is right. I must do this because this is, see, that must be there. All right. Now, thou shalt rise up before the hoary head and honor the face of the old man. Now, what do you think the attitude in America is toward age? What is the general attitude? All right. It's a cult of the youth, certainly. What else is there? They're a burden on society, Father. That's right. Too bad we can't get rid of them, sweep them under, get rid of them, retire them, give them a home, get them out of here. Euthanasia. Yes. Now, in the Spartan world, what did the Spartans do? That's right. They just took them on and killed them. Said they have no place. They can't war anymore. They can't work. Kill them. We need all, see, every generation or every nation that has done that has ultimately come to ruin. Check it in history, and you'll see those who have despised the age because it's against God's commandment. Now, see, when I was a young man and an older person would come over, you know, if I'd run up and I'd say, uh, oh, I just, oh, I can't think, just a disrespectful thing that my parents thought was disrespectful. They'd say, Jimmy, this is Mrs. Jones. Now you say, hello, Mrs. Jones. Oh, hello, Mrs. Jones. Oh, hello, little Jimmy. How are you today? Tell her you're fine. I'm fine, Mrs. Jones. All right, now you can go play. Hi, Mrs. Jones. See, respect. Now, that was trained into the heart of a child. Now, today, many children are not receiving that kind of training because we, ourselves, we grown-ups, have been affected by our social structure. So we have no concept that children should be trained to respect the aged. Now, tell me, in the child's mind, if we say God has existed before eternity, God has existed way back there, when 2,000 years ago, God existed way back there with David. God, ex- The child has in his mind, therefore, that God is a what? Old. Right. See, now old man, right. And he will have to transfer that later on to understanding eternal being. But in his mind, old. See, now, if, however, you do not train the child to have respect for the hoary head, then what, in fact, does the child develop? An attitude of what? All right. And that attitude of disrespect causes him to close his ear toward God's knowledge. He cannot hear it. He just simply cannot hear it. Now, the next attitude that has to be inculcated in the child is toward parents generally. It is the place of parents' instruction... In other words, a child must get used to hearing parents' instruction. Now, unfortunately, many parents today relegate the instruction of their children. It's why I particularly don't like Sunday school. I'll be honest with you. I 
allow Sunday school because I don't see anything wrong with it, but I don't like it. And the reason I don't like it is because many parents now figure this is where my children are going to get their religious instruction in Sunday school. And no child ought to get anything but the most supplementary religious instruction in Sunday school. Where the child ought to be getting instruction in religion is every day from the parents. In word, in deed, in formal times, in sitting down with a word, in explaining life, in because it is the parents' instruction that is going to have the influence on the child. And in fact, if the parent does not give instruction, and it's just Mrs. Jones at Sunday school, and especially if the child has not been trained to respect the aged and to fear them, Sunday school is going to be a time for him to try and provide all kinds of riotous opportunities to disobey and get away with everything he can get away with, and that's his idea of Sunday school, someplace where you stuck him while you went to church. It's a totally wrong type of concept. All right. Then there must be given to him the place of the elder's instruction. Now, this is why I tell you once again, it is a completely wrong concept to take your child out of church all the time. I do not, I don't like that. We say, okay, time for children to leave now, unless we are taking them to a viable time of instruction. They need to hear the elder's instruction. And it has amazed me again and again, brothers and sisters, how many times a child of eight, nine, ten years, and I can tell you our children sat with us in church. Now, we had, like, cradle roll and things like that for Sunday school and so forth. But during the morning service, the children would sit with us. Now, that, sometimes we had to hold them on our lap. Sometimes they'd, sit, they'd squirm a little bit. But you say, stop that. And the child learned to sit quietly. Now, it is completely erroneous to say, my child cannot sit still. Now, I tell you, they can. They tend to be squirming. But if you tell, now I don't mean they won't move a little bit like this. But I'm telling you when they're doing this kind of stuff. See, and say, I can't, I can't control my child. Well, now that's, believe me, it's because wrong attitudes have been trained into those children. Of course you can. Joel the other day, now he was pulling typical thing, which fortunately I've been through it before. He was sitting on my lap. And he saw his mother. And I said to him, I didn't want him to do something. I don't. He said, how am I going to go to my mother? See, like that. I said, no. He said, right here. <laughs> See, picked him up, walked outside, said, Grandpa, I love you. Wah! Don't do that anymore. And he sits there for a while, and he goes, I love you, Grandpa. I said, good. Let's go back and sit down. He sits there. <laughs> no more problem. See? Now, it's amazing. I didn't have to take the job and beat him. I'll take my belt off. I'll kill you, you little rat. See? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm talking about the way we sometimes speak of children. See, the idea of we call them dirty names, that'll scare them. That isn't, that isn't what they need. They need just a firm hand, love. They need to hear words of love. But they need to understand that that word which says no means very narrow idea of no. It means stop what you're doing, do this, do it now. And no other behavior will be tolerated. See, and once they know that, there's no problem at all. They just, okay. See, but I'll tell you what happens that changes their ability to do that. I will discuss that. Okay, now, the place of elders' instruction. They need to hear elders' instruction. Now, what has amazed me 
is a child of five or six or seven. I, I don't want to go so low as to say four or five, but the later part of five, six, seven, eight, you can take a child home from church after a preacher has preached a pretty complicated message. And that child will tell you, Daddy, the preacher said this. What does that mean? And they say, well, I thought what he said was, and that child will carry on an intelligent conversation with you about the real spiritual content of what that preacher said. A child is much more spiritually able to understand than you are with your head. Now, I'll tell you the reason why. The child hears on a different level than we do. See, we get up here with this intellectual level, and we're trying our minds wandering off back. You know, like I watch here at times, I see our minds just wander off over here like this, and then come back suddenly, and then they wander, and come back. But a child, when he's trained, pay attention here. That child will pick up the most amazing tidbits of real spiritual knowledge. He has some ability to grasp it. And I see, and if you practice this, ask your children at home what they learn. You'll be amazed at what they hear and how much of it they really understand. See, and so you say, oh, well, we have to take them over to simple, right there, age level. Listen, there is a place, of course, to teach children at their age level. Of course there is. But I'm saying they need also to be in church to hear the elders' instruction because what they need to hear, now, see, I've given you this as a little incentive to bring your children to church and let them hear, but they need to hear something else. What they need to hear is to see their father and mother sitting there and saying, boy, that's good. That's a beautiful elder that's up there, John, James. That's good. Man, that's, oh, isn't that good? They say, boy, that's good, honey. That's good. See, that's what that child needs to hear. And then he's, that's good. That's good. That's the attitude that you want in him. Now, if you go home and here's your child, listen, say, Oh, man. I tell you, if I have to set through one more message by that, Jones, I'm not going to that church anymore. That's all, man. Now, that's all your child has to hear. Now, what attitude does he have? Okay, see, now, what I'm talking about is not what you say Publicly, I'm talking about what attitude passes to that child. Okay. Instruction of elders, and finally, the place of everyone's instruction. Someone comes over and says, he's doing something there, and someone says, uh, Johnny, you shouldn't be doing that. I don't have to listen to you. My mother said I don't have to listen to you. Or nobody else, just my mother. <clears throat> okay. Now, I'm saying somebody ought to come in right away and correct and say, yes, you do have to listen. You do what she tells you to do. See? Now, it may be later you want to speak to Mrs. Jones. But I'm telling you something, if you teach that child, we're not worried about that child having to do this or that or the other thing at that point. It's nothing. Your child forgets that in five minutes. There's nothing to him at all. But what is important to him is what kind of attitude did he have towards those people. And you get him in that scoffing, snorting kind of an attitude and put that into him, and he's going to have an awful hard job getting that out of him 25, 30, 40 years later. Okay, attitude. See, now we're saying... Now we're getting a picture of an attitude we want in the child. An attitude of general respect toward God, toward man. Well, that's, isn't that just exactly what the Scripture says? 
Love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. Well, love, the basis of love is respect. It has to be there. See, I can't love something I have no respect for, and respect is an attitude that should be put there by God. Okay. Now, there needs to be respect toward the aged, a special reverence and fear, a respect toward authorities uh, in God and of the land. Now, for whatever good this is to pass it along, I think many of the young people today are raising up their children to have a disrespect, let's say, for the president of the land, for the governors of the states, for the mayor of the city, for the policemen on the street, for the school teachers, for... I believe from the word of God, one thing is clear, that we should honor the king. Uphold those in authority and pray for them. That word respect is something that literally must be through the whole fabric of our Christian society or our children will pick up the totally wrong attitudes toward it. That's not always saying the king is right. Or the president is right. We don't have to tell our children that, oh, the president is always right, son. That would be totally false. We're not talking about that. We're saying, son, the president is not always right. But he's got a hard job and a heavy job. And we have a right to change presidents at some point if we want to. But he is our president. And as long as he's doing a halfway right job, we should support him in the best possible way that we can. I believe he's trying to do a pretty good job, son. See? Or, God says that the powers that be are ordained of God. I believe God put him there, son. Now, we're going to take, pray for him every day. We're going to ask God to take care of him, make him a better president. But, see, now if that attitude is put in the children, they grow up with a whole different attitude toward authority. Now, when I was growing up, I thank God for what my parents did for me in that area. See, they did some good things like all parents do for their children. You know, there's no such thing, uh, except in a very few cases, of really just rotten parents. They're just parents. They're trying to do their best. They teach a lot of wrong things, but a lot of right things come along. That's why the Bible says obey your parents. It doesn't talk about obey only godly parents or obey only right parents. It says obey your parents. It's right in the Lord that you should do that. All right, now, when I was a kid... We lived in a pretty rough area where there was a lot of crime went on and bad things. And generally speaking, cops were not held in high esteem. So the word cheese at the cops or, look out, it's a cop. See, that was a cop. That's a cop. My parents would take me by the hand and say, let's walk up and meet this policeman. This policeman is your friend. He's not your enemy. If you're ever lost, you can always walk up to a policeman. Give him your name and your address. He'll make sure that you get home. He's put here to take care of you. Mr. Policeman, I'd like you to meet my boy. I've told him that you're a friend of his and that you... Well, young man, I'm glad to meet you. Yes, sir, and if I can ever help you, you just come and see me. I'll be right walking around this block here looking for you. Then ever after I go, I say, Hello, Mr. Policeman. Hello there, son. How are you today? That's just fine. Just walk. Hey, put the right attitude in me toward authority. Not the wrong way. The pigs, see? Now, put that attitude in a child. 
and that's going to shoot through the whole fabric of his thought process toward society, toward authority, toward government, toward wrong attitudes. See, now you have the power to shape those attitudes. Now let me ask you this question. How many of you, just the attitudes we've been dealing with, how many of you have now to struggle with attitudes that were wrongly put in you, that now you know are wrong, and you're working to get rid of them? But there those attitudes are. You know in your mind you shouldn't think that way anymore. You shouldn't feel that way. And yet at times, in spite of yourself, you go, oh, I and there, just comes out. See? All right, now I'm saying, do you see how we need to work on this total picture? Now, we're not even talking about discipline yet, are we? So you're not, because we've got to know what we're disciplining the child toward. Are we disciplining the child merely so I will get him to shut up the yelling or to eat his bowl of beans or to uh, go out the door when I tell him to or come home at 4 o'clock? Is that the aim of discipline? Or is it a far larger thing, of which it's important if I tell him to be home at four, he's home at four. But that's not the aim of discipline, to get him to obey me at, if that's the end of it, that's a very low point of discipline. The whole thing is to inculcate attitudes in the child that are a total picture of what must be put there. And by the way, that's the only way you can measure how effective your discipline and your training are. If those attitudes are not there, then you can know for sure that your disciplinary training has broken down and you're not doing the thing that you ought to be doing. So you can tell absolutely. If that attitude is not there, boy, I didn't know you're not going the right way. You need help. It's a sure thing I can tell you. Okay. Now, toward the aged, a special reverence and fear, authorities in God and the land, and then an attitude toward property. Property of others and property of their own property of others, they must be taught to respect, not to take, not to break, not to covet. Property of their own, they must be taught to take care of, good stewardship, and to be willing to share. Okay. The place of parents' instruction, in other words, be able to receive parents' instruction. And the only way, of course, they're going to receive parents' instruction is if parents systematically give instruction in a proper attitude. Then the place of elders' instruction. Now, see, that's more removed because you can only find that at church or some special place. And then the place of everyone's instruction. See, a child learns because you want a child to have a hearing ear. A wise child has a listening ear. He can hear. And he can also discern. See? All right. Then toward the ages, a special reverence and fear. There's a special thing there. And that has to be inculcated. Now, in Israel, it was easier because of their tribal relationships and also the way they would dress. The aged would dress in a very dignified, you know, august manner, and they would try to carry themselves that way. And the aged would walk in such a way that then they would come, here would be the rulers, and they would usually be the aged people, and they would walk. And it was a, then the parents said, oh, there's the patriarchs. Look, there they are. See? Well, now, Ellie Snedeker one time did something that I thought was real good. She was trying to inculcate this same attitude, except wasn't able to do it because we weren't hardly dressed augustly. We were dressed in our sneakers and sweatsuits and whatever else was up at Bridgeport, and we were up way on the hill above the house there, maybe you remember it, and we were praying to God. It was like 5 o'clock in the morning, probably 6, 6.30, 7, something like that. And little uh, Jennifer, 
woke up and she said, come here, Jennifer, quick. She said, I'm going to take you. She said, look up there at the men of God praying for us. She said, isn't that wonderful? There they stand before God and they're praying for us that we will be blessed. Isn't that wonderful? Jennifer said, oh, yes, Mama, yes. Now, she didn't understand. You know, the men of God praying for us and the men of God. But she picked up what? She picked up the oh yes mother yes mother she picked up the attitude then from then on she looked up there and, oh there are the men of God who are see there's the attitude now that attitude will have to be it's not just once or twice is enough but if that attitude is the general attitude of the mother and father then that attitude will be the attitude of the child as it grows up and say there are the men of God when the elder stands up to preach there is the man of God when he lays hands on the sick. There is the man of God who, see, it's that principle which must be inculcated. Okay. The aged, a special reverence and fear, then the authorities in God and of the land. The authorities in God would be the, the ruling structure of the church and the ministering structure of the church, and then of the land, the president, so forth and so on. And then toward property, others' property. He must be taught not to take it, break it, or covet it. All right, now that got to work on that, right? Because what is the normal thing a child does, walks in, sees somebody else's toy, what's the first thing he does? Yeah, he wants it. See? Now, not wrong for him to play with it, but that spirit must be taken out of him which says, give me that. I'm going to play with that. No, you can't have it. And he breaks it. Oh, you nasty little child. Oh, you shouldn't have done that. Oh, what am I going to do with you? No, no. That must never be allowed to continue. That is a wrong attitude to let take place in a child, see? All right, now, their own property, however, they must be trained to take care of it with stewardship and trained to share what they have. Now, it's not the same thing as, say, give away everything they have. You've got to train them when it's right for them not to give it away and keep it properly, see, or... If they know someone is coming over to bring out the right things and put the other things away. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can do, but you've got to train a child to share as well as take care of the things that he has. Now, see, are we seeing now a larger picture? This is what we're moving the child toward. And we're saying when he's hopefully 12, 13, 14, we're really saying we're hopefully by the time he's five or six that these attitudes will be there. Rudimentary, but there. See, now we keep building upon them and giving him greater understanding as his reasoning powers enlarge, as his capacity enlarges, and we keep enlarging that with him. some point he makes this conversion, the Holy Spirit now is building that in him. By the time he's 14, 15, 16, look at David. By the time he was 12, 13, fully formed ideas about God, his sovereignty, his power, his promises, his abilities, his totally grown man at that point. By the time he was 17 or 18, he was leading armies of Israel to tremendous victory. See, the idea that a child is going to be formed when it's 20 or 25 or 30, that's really foolishness if we have time to deal with them properly from their youth up. Now, see, the ancient Israelites, God gave them a very strong program. Feasts, feast days, days at the tabernacle or the instructional continuously. Now let me just read some things here. This is Exodus 13:8, And thou shalt show thy son in that day, saying, This is done. Speaking of the feasts. 
This is done because of that which the Lord did unto me when I came forth out of Egypt. And it shall be for a sign unto thee upon thine hand, and for a memorial between thine eyes, that the Lord's law may be in thy mouth, for with a strong hand hath the Lord brought thee out of Egypt. Thou shalt therefore keep this ordinance in his season from year to year. And it shall be when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What is this? Thou shalt say unto him, By strength of hand the Lord brought us out from Egypt, from the house of bondage, and it came to pass when Pharaoh would hardly let us go, that the Lord slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man. Now notice the instruction. Now here's the child saying, Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yes. How'd that happen? God is a mighty God, son. God is eternal. Yes, Father. Yes, Father. That's why we're here now. We were slaves in Egypt. And God brought us out. That's why we keep this day. That's why you must keep it forever, son. That's why you must tell your children. That's why. Yes, Dad, I will. I will, Father. I will. See, it's that attitude that's held the Israelitish people together. Every kind of crisis you can think of, they're still a nation. Because that holds them together. See, even though they've dropped a lot of those things, yet the traditions are very strong in that people. Now, there's traditions which Paul says have been delivered to us as Christians, too. And those things ought to be very strong in us and passed on to our children with great force and with great power. Okay. Hardly let us go that the Lord slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all that openeth the matrix, firstborn of the sheep, so forth, all that openeth the matrix being males. But the firstborn of my children I redeem. And it shall be for a token upon thine hand, and for frontlets between thine eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Then other scriptures saying exactly the same thing. So you see, the Israelites literally had a program by which they inculcated a whole system of attitudes into the hearts of those children. So by the time they were grown, they had a whole way of thinking about their parents, about God, about the aged, about life, about the feasts about everything was literally laid out in a format that by following that when the child come to age, he had a very clear understanding of what was expected of him as an Israelitish man and an Israelitish woman. Very clear. Everything was spelled out. All right, now, I think unless there is a return to respect for the aged, see, that's why a woman like Honoré, I treat her with great respect. I want to take care of her. Or when a man like Frank Steinke comes, I want to treat him with great respect. If I say, oh, that old guy, man, they, he, you know, he's... I don't ever want to treat an older man like that old guy. See, the same thing with Harley Watchers. There were times when he would be in a stubborn frame of mind or he would act in funny ways. But I'll tell you one thing I always had for that man. He was a lifelong friend that laid down anything he had for me. I treated that man with great respect as a father in the Lord and one to be listened to see. and he sensed that in me and he was with me all the days of his life see. I think unless that attitude is inculcated what's going to happen in this next generation to our children none of us are going to want to contemplate it now I think certain actions are going to have to be taken by the church and I think part of the work of gospel outreach if you want to put it or part of my work is to bring back into the church some of those attitudes, traditions, which will produce safety for our children. 
See, now, I tell you, it would not do anything but good for your children, and not only yours, but anybody's children, to teach them to stand up in the presence of age. See, if they did that, they could learn nothing but a right attitude toward God. See, the same thing that I do with my Bible. Now, with our children, when they were growing up, here'd be the Bible laying down. And they'd be reading a school book and they'd throw it over there. I'd say, son, don't put anything on top of the Bible. Put that book under the Bible. The Bible should always be on top or we can reach it easily. See, today, they've got an attitude toward the Word of God. That belongs on top. Now, same thing with marriage. When people came to us and they said, well, what about marriage? Uh, we want to get married in the sight of God, not the sight of man. Now, I want to tell you, there's a way, I don't know if you know, that you can get people married legally this way. That I can just call them up. They don't have to go before the county. I can call them up and marry them. Merely write out a letter that they have appeared before me, that I have witnessed this. Here's two other people witnessed it, and they have been duly married. Send the letter in. They will record the letter, and they're married. They don't have to go before the county. They don't have to get a license. They don't have to have a certificate. They don't have to have a ring. They don't have to have anything. Did you know that in California? That's true. You know why I would never do that? I want to make marriage a solemn, awesome occasion. I want to tell them, I want you to talk to me first before you get married. I want to tell you about marriage. I want you to meet with the elders. I want you to pray about it. I want you to get their approval. Oh, you have their approval, do you? Set a date. Pray about it. Tell me the right date. Oh, yes, this date. Okay, we're with you. Get yourself a license. Get yourself the blood test you need. Oh, man, I mean, uh, well, we're going through it. That's right. Marriage is important. Do it right. Now, come before the man of God. I want you to see the whole congregation. They're going to witness to this situation. You're going to speak your vows openly. You're going to be heard by God and by man. And when we're satisfied that that's right, then we will perform the wedding service. See, oh, oh, you mean this is, well, yes. But tell me, I'm doing it not only for the person getting married. Guess who else I'm doing it for? Yes, but especially a certain class of people. It's in my mind. That's right, the children. I want the children to see godly marriage. I want them to feel that there was a joyful thing when it happened, but there was an awesome thing leading up to it. I want them to hear a sermon that says, this is what marriage is like. Now, that's a tradition, isn't it? I mean, you can't find that in the Bible. Say, well, you know, show me where that is in the Bible. It isn't in the Bible. But there are certain traditions which bind the fabric of society together. And I'll deal with those a little later on. We should not be very quick to change those traditions. They're very important. We pass them on from generation to generation. See? Now, there's some traditions that will change. That's okay. But they should change very slowly. But the attitude, the generation that despises father and mother, it says, and despises the tradition, despises elders, despises, that generation is headed for judgment. See? There is a place for good traditions. Good traditions. Now it says, here's Job speaking. He's speaking the old days when he was in his dignity. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I took my seat in the square, see, among the, the elders of the land, the young saw me and hid themselves. 
And the old men arose and stood, so great was his dignity. Princes stopped talking and put their hands on their mouths. The voice of nobles was hushed, their tongues stuck to their palate. For when the ear heard, it called me blessed. When the eye saw, it gave witness of me. Now, here's an attitude. See, it existed in the whole fabric of their society. Now, another place, however, we find, for instance, when Israel had deteriorated to such a great extent under the judges, Elijah, or Elisha, I forget which one it was, that he was walking with some of the young men, and some young men or young children, King James says, other versions say young men, came out and said, Go up, thou bald head! Go up, old bald head! Man, called judgment down, bears came out and tore forty and two of them. See, I mean, totally bad thing. Now, in the New Testament, we don't do that. We don't do that because we're not of that spirit. You know, in the New Testament, they want to do exactly the same thing. He said, no, you're not of that spirit. But the point that I'm making is that attitude needs to be, see, and it's saying those young men or children were totally out of it. Yet today, if somebody, we'd say, oh, well, you shouldn't do things like that. Or, or maybe we wouldn't even say that. Very wrong thing. Very wrong thing. Okay, now, let me give another couple of scriptures here just along that same line. Only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach them to thy sons and thy sons' sons. See, says not only teach them to your sons, but grandparents should teach the grandchildren. By the way, that was Deuteronomy 4, 9, 10, 11, so forth. Deuteronomy 6, 6, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and talk of them diligently when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand. They shall be as frontless between thine eyes. Thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and thy gates. Deuteronomy 11:19, Ye shall teach them your children, speaking of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Deuteronomy 31:12, Gather the people together, men, women, and children, and the stranger that is within thy gates. Now notice this, men, women, those were the men and women of God, the children, and the stranger within thy gates, which may have been Part of the Israelitish thing or may not have been, may just simply have been a servant. Gather them, it says. That they may hear and that they may learn and fear the Lord your God and observe to do all the words of the law. And that their children, which have not known anything, may hear. See, the point is to inculcate those things into their lives. And learn to fear the Lord your God. Now, what is the word? Learn to fear. You don't fear the Lord God like some magic thing. How do you do it? Step by step. What should be in the heart of a child before six and built upon to maturity? All right, the first thing is, and I use the word respect. Now, that word respect, spect means to look at and re means to do again. So the idea is to look at twice. Whatever we respect, we take a second look at. You know, and say, I never gave him a second look means it's no worth our time. Or I did a double take. And I said, hey, that's... He looked at twice. Okay, that's the idea of respect. And what you want in each of these things, 
are healthy, awesome feelings. And the word the Bible uses again and again is fear. And that's a proper word. But not fearfulness. See, he's taking that spirit out of us, but not taking out of us fear. Now, if you can see that you're moving the child toward this, so all of the training then, and the instruction, the discipline, everything the Word of God talks about is to, when the child is six, these attitudes are now in him. A healthy respect toward God, toward his person and his word. I say this can be by, don't put anything on top of the Bible there, son. Let's open the Word of God together, daughter. I'm going to read to you. This is the Word of God. This is that type of thing. Right tone of your voice. See? Like, uh, yeah, throw me the Bible over. I'll read it for a while. Okay. Let me show you sometimes how things can be that this is the topical textbook, but it looks like a Bible. And you open the Bible up and you... Oh, yes, here it is. John 3, 3. See? Now, notice this. Okay. Um, yeah, and so, uh, uh, so, 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 so. Okay, that's enough for tonight. Now, uh, now you said something to your child. What did you say? You said something to your child. That's going to be in him way down the line. All right. Now, the point is, though, the Word of God is put down and say, Boris, here, son, here's God's Word. Would you go put it? Oh, yes. See, then here's the magazine going on top. Son, daughter, don't, don't put that on top. Not on top of God's Word. God's Word's always on top. Oh, oh, oh yes. See, okay. Now, this is what I'm saying about in all of those little things, Everything we're doing then is aiming toward producing these attitudes in the child. Now, the problem that we're now going to run into, the discussion that I'm now going to run into, because I'm going to talk about methods now, is we run into the idea, well, I know how to raise my own child, all right? Uh, I, first of all, would disagree completely with that opinion. I don't think anybody knows how to raise their own child. I haven't got the foggiest notion how to raise them. And uh, without the grace of God working in our lives at all times, we're going to end up with a bunch of hooligans instead of properly raised children. I'll tell you that for sure. Uh, if our children ever get raised up in a decent way at all, you can always count it as the grace of God. But sometimes what we run into by meaning we know how to raise our own children is that we, in fact, are not using God's methods of discipline and training and therefore are not putting those attitudes into children. And I'm saying, now, you can test your own child. See, are those attitudes, in fact, getting in there? If they are not, then know that your training methods are erroneous, and we better go back to the Word of God. Now, what is the Word of God? Now, here's God's training method. One, the impartation of commandments. The impartation of instruction, different than commandments, it's more 
here's why, how, so forth. Example, counsel. Now see, the counsel of the ancestors, very important. When David was dying, he left counsel for his son Solomon. Make sure, Solomon, that you, the dying word of the father, very important. My grandmother, I can still hear it ringing in my ears. She didn't know the Lord. She was dying. My parents were both dead. My grandfather was gone. I was going to be left as an orphan. She was almost unconscious. Her heart was failing. And she said, Jimmy, be a good boy. Be a good boy. Last words. Man, like an arrow in my heart. I heard that years and years. Even when I was doing wrong, here was my grandmother loving me. Jimmy, be a good boy. See, counsel of parents, very important. Okay. Traditions. Now, there are traditions which are Christian traditions and ought to be treated very carefully. For instance, like one of the things that I never like to see a parent do is when we're taking communion. And we give the child the fruit of the vine and the cracker as a mollifying ointment with no sense of reverence to it. Yeah, here's here, eat this, drink this, okay, and here's the kid. Uh, now I want some more grape juice. Well, here's some more grape juice. Putting something in him should never be there. Say, no, son. You can have some. But this is the Lord's body and blood. Now you're going to have to eat this for I'll give it to you. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I hand you this. Oh, See, he picks it up from you right away. But if you merely give it to him something to eat and drink, time comes now you tell him, oh, this is no longer just eat and drink. Now this is the body. Many times he no more gets that idea than, you know, it just isn't there. That's all. Okay. Counsel, traditions, admonishment, correction, and punishment. Now you notice, I put this down here at the last, right? But it is not the least. It is a very real place in the training of any child. Okay, let's take some of the scriptures in the Word of God now. Now you see, any of these attitudes missing in the adult or replace some of those attitudes, for instance, like the Bible says in the third chapter of Romans, there is no fear of God in their eyes. Alright, take the attitude of the fear of God and replace it with there is no fear of God. Or take and replace the attitude where let every man fear his father and his mother. Or honor your father and your mother. Now let's say there's a generation which despises father and mother. So now replace the attitude in the heart of the child with despising father and mother. Replace receiving instruction with not hearing instruction, which is tantamount to being what in the scripture? The man who doesn't hear instruction is a what? A fool, right. All right, so now, then, if you don't train a child to hear instruction, what you're raising then is a fool. You cannot afford to do that, not if you value that child very highly. See? All right, now the same situation. Elders, the age of everyone, you're training him to have an ear. Training him to have a respect for authority of both God and man. But man's authority is God's authority, isn't it? It says there's no power but of God. God has established those things. So you train him to have no respect for that. Replace that. Now, do you see, replace a respect for the property of others in your own. Respect, take the respect for prayer, for church, for themselves, for other children, for all men everywhere. Any one of these attitudes that are not there, and can you see in marriage or in life? 
the child, now the grown-up, will what? He'll have difficulty adjusting to life. He will have trouble. See? All right, so here we come to Christ. Now I'm going to bring it, although I'm going to still deal with these areas here of the child because we're going to want to know how to make this work in our own children's lives and in a sense in our own grown-up lives because the same thing works. See, because what areas we're childish in, that's the area we're going to have to be trained like a child to we're an adult in that area. It's just the way it is. Only God does the chastening. The brothers do the chastening. The church does the chastening. The same principle exactly. All right. Now, in any of these areas where this is lacking, here's going to be an inner impulse to do. Let's replace this one here, which seems to be less important, where we have no respect for the property of others. We'll borrow anything. People got busted all up, handed back to them, feel no responsibility to pay for it or to return it in the correct way. Just say, oh, well, praise the Lord, all broke. Not praise the Lord, it all broke. We really mean no one ever trained into us to say, I borrowed that, therefore I am responsible for it. I got it in good working shape. I will return it in good working shape. See? No thought like that. Now, however, we come to God, and this now is imposed on our minds that we should be there. Because somebody says, listen, if you borrow something, the Christian thing to do is return it in good shape. You got it. Or if you borrow a car and it breaks down, be willing to pay whatever part of that you're really responsible for, so forth and so on. See, whatever... Now, that's in our minds that we should do it. But I don't really want to do it down inside. Can you see the warfare I'm going to have now? All right. Now, to the extent more of these are missing, I'm going to find whole areas of my life that are desperately miserable and cause me to act in funny ways toward all kinds of people under all kinds of circumstances. So, what God is doing then is to work to put into us now those things which our parents did not put into us, or they might have put into us exactly the opposite, and God is going to have to change that attitude situation altogether. Now, the method by which any attitude is put into a child or a grown-up is by exactly this method here. Commandments, instruction, example, counsel, traditions, the pressure of the church. Powerful thing to get people to... People say, I don't like pressure. people pressuring me into doing something I don't want to do. Thank God that people do pressure us into doing things we don't want to do, or we do be doing a, lot, a whole lot of weird things that we're not now doing. We say, I can't do that because of what people say. That's right. That's good. See, that's good. Now, ultimately, we want it to come from within inside where you say, I see why I shouldn't do that, and I won't do it. It's right that I should not. But in the beginning, that's a proper pressure. See, All right, so counsel, traditions, admonishment, correction, and finally punishment. And one I did not put down here because we hope it never has to be used. In the Old Testament, a child who finally would not hear any of these things and completely went against was taken outside and stoned in the gates. He was killed. Well, the same thing happens to a child of God, does it not? He finds himself totally isolated from the people of God, excommunicated, put outside and left to himself. And he's like, oh, wow, what's going on here? Same principle exactly. See, he's not stoned or killed like that. And he certainly can come back, thank God for that. But he is... Isolated. For instance, the man who took his father's wife, Paul said, put that wicked man out from among you. And when he came back and repented, see, then he was received back. Paul said, now receive him back in. He said, put him out. Okay. Now, where we start from, every parent must start from this point of view. Foolishness is bound in the heart of the child. Bound in the heart of the child. Now, bound in the heart of which child? Every child. Every child. See? But the rod of correction will drive it far from him. Okay? Foolishness is bound. Or 
There it is. Now, it's there because of sin. It's there because of a lack of instruction. See, the Bible says, you know nothing. Well, how would they know anything? They're just newborn. They don't know anything. But foolishness bound the heart of the child. Now, therefore, the next statement is, a child left to himself cometh to ruin. Why? Because already foolishness bound in his heart. Now, at some point, he will become less and less flexible, less and less able to change, and what is the end of it? It is not foolishness bound in the heart of a child. He becomes a full-fledged fool. He has no ability to hear anymore. He scoffs and scorns at everything. He puts everything down. He hears nothing, and the end of that is total ruin. All right, so now, if I start with my child, a child is born to me. I am a minister of the gospel. I have been preaching the Word of God. My wife has been saved longer than I have. She's filled with the Spirit. I am filled with the Spirit. Here's this beautiful gift of God to me. I dedicate that child to God. Here, God, is this gift. And I... What is true about that child, though? This is what's true. Foolishness is bound in the heart of the child. That child. But the rod of correction will drive it far from him. Now, I do not want to raise a fool. What do I want to raise? I want to raise a man or a woman of God wise in the ways of God. Okay. Now, next point then, see? So we've got to say now then, how do we look at these things here? How do we begin to apply these things? How to evaluate whether he is learning? Could somebody tell me by the basis now? See, I told you I'd try to give you a logical basis. How can we evaluate if the child is learning? So for his grown-up years, he will know how to behave and act and be. How can we tell? I see in the ministry, that's why these things are going to have to be taught to you and through you to others and all the way down the line. I see already some children born in the ministry, their children are devoid of respect. Now, when you speak to the child, he'll look at you. And I say, that's bad. That's very, very bad that any child should ever respond to an elder that way. His parents should have so trained him that when someone speaks to him, hello, John, my son. Oh, hello, sir. Or hello, Joe. Or hello, Mr. Soles. Or hello, Mrs. See? Now I say, when I was a Youngster, foolishness bound in the heart of a child. Someone came in. One time there was a lady. She had a bunch of warts all over her face, and we called her the old witch on the streets. Mrs. Arndt or something like that. I forget her name now exactly, but something like that. And uh, she came in the house one time and said, Oh, the old witch, the old witch. I should not have said that. (laughs) See? Got my little seat tanned. This is Mrs. So-and-so. You apologize to her. I'm sorry, ma'am. I didn't. When I saw her in the street, hello, Mrs. So-and-so. I, oh, hello, little James. You're, see, respect. All right. Same, when I was a kid, I stole an apple from the store. My mother marched me right back down. And, oh, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I know you don't want to go, but you're going to have to face up to this, and you're going to have to tell this man you respect the mother's property. I took an apple. I said, I didn't mean it. I didn't. Well, it's all right this time, James. 
Your mother's going to have to deal with you and your father, but what you did is wrong, young man, but I'm glad you stood up and you apologized to me. I appreciate that, but you, I want to tell you, never stole any more apples off the corner or any other place for that matter. I got the message. See, you're going to have to go back and you're going to have to face that. You're going to have to deal with that. Respect for others' property. See, now many times a day, we say, oh, I can't tell my, you know that, I'll cover this up. I'll never do that. Make that child face up to what's wrong. See, here's, all of these things are there. Commandments. Here's what the word of the Lord is. Now, not commandments like, here's my commandment to you. child can hear that. That should be good enough, but it's not good enough. You've got to put into him that awesome fear of God. Here is the word of the Lord. See, that's why I said when the feast... Why are you doing this, Father? I am doing this because of what God did in my life. Why are you doing that, Dad? I'm doing this because of what Jesus did in my life. He completely changed me. My life was ruined. My life was I was. But here's what he's done in my... Oh, I see, Dad. I see. I see, Mother. I understand. See? That... All right. Commandments, instruction, example, so forth and so on. Foolishness is bound in the heart of the child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. Now, here are commandments, the Bible being full of them. In the area of instruction, I've already discussed the area of counsel to parents. Listen to this, 1 Kings 2.1. Now, the days of David drew nigh that he should die. Okay. And he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest, and whithersoever thou turnest thyself. That the Lord may continue his word which he spake concerning me, saying, If thy children take heed to their way, and walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail thee, said he, a man on the throne of Israel. That final provisional instruction that David gave to his son. This is Proverbs 13:24. He that spareth his rod hateth his son. But he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. Now, once again, remember, what is the purpose of all chastening? Think of it now. See, in the, in the larger sense, what's the purpose of all chastening? To enforce that instruction. See, because foolish is bound to heart, he is not going to just simply you speak to him, he hears that. He does not hear that. He will never hear that. Unless the instruction is given, unless you know to what you are moving the child, and you then enforce that with the proper use of discipline. See, admonishment is a part of that rod of correction. Correction, where you say, stop that, is part of that. And punishment, where you enforce it by physical discipline. All of these things are very clear in Scripture that they are to be used. Now, a man some years ago, I heard him say that foolishness in the Old Testament about punishment. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Anytime you look at the Word of God and call it foolishness, we are in big trouble. And he was in big trouble. His whole family's in a pretty funny place, I'll tell you that. Chasten thy son while there is hope. Now let me ask a question. What does that imply? That's right. There's going to be a point where hope will disappear. There will be no hope. All right. Chasten thy son while there is hope, and let not thy soul spare for his crying. Now, 
I wish to answer a question that was asked, and it kind of goes like this. My children are more sensitive than most, and all I have to do is speak a word to them, and that's enough to break them up in pieces. Now, there has to be some method of testing whether that idea is true or not. Right? Now, once again, I'm going to call you back to the method of testing whether that idea is true or not. The method of testing whether that idea is true is not to say, don't do that, and the child says, and you say, oh, look how sensitive they are. Man, just a word, and they break right up. Break up my foot. That's an emotional display. This is the only test you can apply. Is the child growing in these areas? Is there a clear-cut area of respect and understanding in these areas? If there is not, don't ever kid yourself that your child is sensitive. The child is merely putting on an emotional display, and you are sensitive. Now, did you hear that? You are sensitive. Now, that's exactly why the Bible says, Chasten thy son while there is hope, and let not thy soul spare for his cry. See, the child, foolishness is bound in his heart, but I say all that he's pretty smart too. Now, unless you know how to apply that final enforcement of discipline, and I don't know where it will come. See, it may be at some point you're merely able to instruct him, and he says, oh, okay, mother, I'll do that. Okay, fine, that's enough. So you don't have to go on and say, okay, I've got to make sure you're going to do it, so I'm going to whack you too. No, that's like my dad. I'm going to beat you every day with you, and I'll spank you every day with you. No need for that if this works. But if this does not work, and then I have to admonish him and say, you have done improperly, you must do this and do it now, and, well, no, I don't want to do that, or I won't do it, or uh, like you're saying one time, does he argue with you, and, well, how about this, how about that? There's a place where you should say, all right, let me explain this to you so you clearly understand this. See, but they, well, I don't know if I, stop. Now, you're going to have to do it. Now, do it. See? All right, now, at this point, most parents fail, if they're going to fail. They fail in this area. The child may now give them a dirty look, like, see, and the parent, oh, look at it, he just hates me. That's right. And if we don't properly carry on the discipline to the end, they're going to end up hating you. I mean, really hating you. Because you've not given them the kind of real direction that they need. <clears throat> say. And you move on to the next part is absolute correction. Cannot, see, I'm saying with Joel, my grandson, if I'd let him pull that stunt off in church, which he did pull off, tried to pull off, and let him get away with that, I would have no more relation to him as a grandfather. Now, whenever he sees me, the other day he was in bed, came in the house, he heard my voice, Grandpa's here, Grandpa's here, oh, Grandpa's here. See, he delights to see. Why would he delight to see me when I whacked him on his little bottom? Because he knows I love him. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but I'm going to tell you something, they love correction too. You can put that instructional heart in them, and they love correction. Now he runs out to see Daisy. She's the same way. She doesn't put up with any nonsense with him, but loves him, gives him plenty of leeway. He's a child. You're not trying to make a grown-up out of him. But the whole point is there's a place where you have to enforce correction. Now, if correction will not do it, a word, 
then you must use this. Now, if this is used, the only point of this is to move back to this, and to this, and to this, and to this, and finally, where your instruction is enough. Here's the instruction of a father. See, the point of punishment is to get the child to receive that your word means exactly what you say it means. Now, I'm thinking of a young couple that they were in our church many, many years ago. Their children today are in great difficulties. I was in their home on several occasions, knew them rather intimately over a long period of time, and the father and the mother, the children would be out in the other room just riotously carrying on. The father would say words about like this. Now let me try and get it exactly and about the way he did it too. You children shut up in there! I'm gonna come up there, I'm gonna beat you to death! You understand me? I'm gonna beat you to death! The children went right on, riotously carrying on. And then he'd go back to reading whatever he's doing, see, and talking to me and so on. And I'm almost sitting there saying, is there nothing more beyond this? You know? Then pretty soon he said, maybe go on for an hour, you know, it's getting louder. Show me out there! And the kids go right on, yelling and screaming. I said, this is insane. Now, another house I was in, same thing. The children are wrecked. I was sitting there, and this is before Daisy had, I had any children. We were just married, but she was pregnant then. The child comes out. He takes his pants down in the living room. He dumps on the floor. You know, I said, the father says, Jim, you're going to have to learn to be patient with children. <laughs> this is crazy. You know, now, this is a Christian say, we've got to have the patience of Jesus with children. Well, amen, I believe in the patience of Jesus, but there's some place to tell them they're not supposed to come out and go to the toilet on the living room floor. Say, okay, now a child knew better than that, too. Knew better than that. Okay. Yeah, I speak the truth. Those are the exact things of what took place, you know. Okay. Withhold not correction from the child. For if thou beatest him with a rod. Now, these are extreme things. In other words, you, you, it isn't immediately that the way you correct the child, grab the rod and beat the daylight. So that isn't what it's talking about at all. But it's simply saying use whatever extreme you have to finally use to enforce a right attitude and a right behavior pattern. If the child is constantly moved into a right pattern of behavior, that pattern will go down into the depths of his being. Now, I want to tell you, the Russians, strangely enough, have learned this in their behavior control methods. They have learned to take a person, a grown-up now, and put them through, like, literally a torture chamber, in which they will take the person with a rubber truncheon and beat them almost senseless, while at the same time saying, you're going to do this, and when I tell you to obey, you're going to obey. And it's boom, boom, just beat them until they're just screaming with pain. Now, I'm using extreme because we're talking about a grown-up adult. Nowhere near anything like that has to be done with a child. But I'm saying that they say that that response goes so deep in this grown-up adult that later, when he is ordered to do something, even though he wants to logically not do it, the thing within him is so strong that he simply is moved toward doing that thing. Now, here we're talking about grown-ups, see? All right, now, I'm saying the devil is 
taking God's methods where a little correction, a little punishment, a little rap would enforce your words so that no means no, yes means yes, stop means stop, go means go, and instead of that, we as Christians end up like that man that I was telling you about, yelling and screaming at his children and paying absolutely no attention to it. Today they're all messed up. Just I, It pains me. Those were decent children. And today they have no rule over their spirits or their lives. And all of them, you shut up, I'm going to kill you. See, such statements as these are insane. Because in the first place he was not going to kill anybody, but he never enforced his word. Now, there's the problem. Okay. Withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with a rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with a rod, and shalt deliver his soul from hell. The rod and the reproof give wisdom. Now, what do you think about that? What do you think about that statement? The rod and the reproof give wisdom. All right, now what is it saying then? Let's put it the other way. If you don't give reproof to a child since foolishness is bound in his heart, if you don't use the rod when you need it, what is the result? A child without wisdom. A foolish child. No training. See? Okay. The rod and the reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. Correct thy son, and he shall give thee rest. Yea, he shall give delight unto thy soul. Now notice the the tremendous thing. I mean, it's, 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 it's too, too pointed not to be very important in the heart of God to get this message across to us how to bring the child to this place of life where it has deep down in his spirit he says, these are my attitudes. See? Now, here are examples of good children, somewhat of the qualities. A wise son wise son, make of a glad father. A wise son heareth his father's instruction. Now there's that respect, hearing ear again. A wise son heareth his father's instruction. He that regardeth reproof is prudent. A wise son maketh a glad father. Whoso keepeth the law is a wise son. Better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will no longer be admonished. A son honoreth his father. Now there's those basic qualities or qualifications. Then it goes on to talk about what a wicked son is. And of course, the exact opposite is true. A wise son heareth his father's instruction, but a scorner heareth not rebuke. A fool despiseth his father's instruction, but he that regardeth reproof is wise. A wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish man despiseth his mother, so forth and so on. Now, let me give you some techniques here, if I may, that I don't think they're techniques. I think they're just like the very basics. When you think about them, it has to be that way. Number one, a child should never hear a divided mother and father in the matter of its discipline. Let me point out something. Suppose the mother says to the child, do not do this. The child cries and fusses and carries on and puts up a big fuss. What is very likely to happen at that point? 
very common in many, many families. What's liable to happen? He'll say, oh, mother, you know, you're a little too hard on little so-and-so here. And uh, you, you go on. You can do that. Your, your daddy understands. All right. Now, that's the daddy side. Now, comes to the daddy. Daddy, can I do this? Uh, no, I don't think you better do that, son. <laughs> Mom, my daddy won't let me do that. Walks right in. Jim, you're just too hard on the boy or the girl. You've got to let them have a little free. Now, you just... Well, man, I told him no. Well, it seems to me you're always telling him no. Now, that's ridiculous. All right, go ahead and do it then. Go on. See, all right. Now, what has the child got the message of? Got deep respect for the father and mother, right? <laughs> he has no respect for the father and mother. He only figures out how can I work them against each other, get them mad at each other, then I will. See, now, unfortunately, many fathers and mothers are so competitive for the love of the child that they fall into that trap again and again and again. Now, if that child ever should not hear division between a father and a mother, it's in the matter of discipline of that child. If, now sometimes it is true that the mother's made a wrong decision, or the father thinks so, or the father's made a wrong decision, the mother thinks so, not necessarily that it is wrong, what should they now do? Let's say the mother's made a decision. The child comes to the father, says, uh, Mama, said this. what do you think? What should the father say? should absolutely say, if that's what your mother said, that's what you should do. Now, there's no point in talking to me. I'm with your mother. She's your mother. Listen to your mother. Your mother's right. All right. Now, if the father thinks the mother is not completely right, they can sit down and discuss it. And if there's a change, then that child should hear the change, not from the other party, but from who? From the same person who made the decision. Yes. Oh, never in front of the child. Never. It should be private, a different place, different. Then the mother can come back and say, I've been thinking it over. Mother is wrong sometimes. And when mother's wrong, mother will correct herself. Or whatever word she wants to use that she feels is right for that situation, mother is changing, not in front of the child. Folks, I think it's important that we understand something. Justice is not important in this life. Now, Oh, justice, man. You've got to give the child justice. The child does not need justice, and I can't tell you what justice is in every possible case anyhow. What the child needs to have these attitudes put in his heart, that it's better to have a submitted heart, it's better to have respect, it's better to have obedience than to have your way, which in many cases what people consider justice. When I get what I want, that's justice, and that's not justice at all. See, But I'm saying it is not important for the child to have justice anymore. It's important for you to have justice. Let me point out to you what I'm getting at here. Let's say you're dealing with an elder, and an elder makes a decision in your life, or someone who has a proper right to make a decision. All right, now the Bible says obey every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, so we're talking about authority of man, or obey them to have the rule over you. Now, you know it doesn't mean, can't mean, impossible to mean, that obey them to have the rule over you because they're always right. Obviously, that's ridiculous. They're not always right. They can't be always right. But it's more important to have the submitted heart because sometimes you can't even determine what's right. See, you, you don't know, you know. So an elder guy says, I'm going to get married. All right, he's asked 17 girls in the last 16 months to get married. Finally, he says, this is the one. This is the real one. You say, well, wait six months. Oh, man, listen, man. God's telling me to get married next week. See, 
submit. You know, you're all married here. Isn't that nice? I can talk like that, see? But the guys go, oh, man, I want justice. This girl may get away from me. Well, you know, if he's got 16 that got away, this one may get away, too. But if it's going to happen that fast, she better get away. I mean, that's, you know, from my personal opinion. Okay. There is a place where the child picks up more by what the mother says about the father or the father says about the mother when they are not together that produces obedience than you can possibly know. For instance, if the mother says about the father, our daddy says we must do this and we must because he's right. If she says, well, you're going to have to do it because your father says you're going to have to do it. What she really said to the child is what? I wouldn't make you, but... That's right. I don't necessarily believe this myself, but your father said, so we're going to have to do that. See, our dad said, our father said, this is what we should do, and that's right. See, it's like I've kind of made the illustration long ago, and it's kind of a funny one in a way, and yet it's not funny at all. It's a really right illustration. If we say to a child who might say, like, let's say when the men are traveling on a trip, and I'll give you this as an illustration, where's daddy? Oh, he's gone off on another one of those nutty trips he goes off on every month. You know, I have one, I'm tired of it. I'm getting plenty tired of all that. See, all right. Now, child's going to get one idea about what he's doing. If, on the other hand, the wife says, now, look, maybe I'm tired of those trips. And I wish we didn't have to take them, but I realize the time we do have to take them or something like that. But I'm thinking of my child. Where's daddy? Our daddy is off on very important business for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's taking care of the business of the kingdom. And he's helping a lot of people out there. And he's going to be back very shortly with very important news when he comes back about the good things that took place there. Aren't we proud of our daddy? Oh. Mm. Mm. That to him is like, or her is like big stuff. But if your attitude is a wife, now, I'm going to get the husband's attitude in just a moment. If your attitude as a wife is, oh, man, then that's the attitude that's going to be inculcated into the child about the work of the Lord. Now, the same situation is about the husband. He can be out with the child alone or children, whatever. And, uh, well, let's go here. Well, Mama said we shouldn't eat any more of that. Oh, Mama's always got those foolish ideas about we shouldn't do this. or just, Come on, come on, just your daddy. We're going to have some of that. Okay, now what you taught that child is you pay no respect to anybody about anything, right? Now, see, what I'm trying to say is to lay down a logical base upon which we can reason in our dealings with our children, how we know how to deal with them, because we know what we're aiming toward, how we know what the tools of our training are, commandments, admonition, correction, training, instruction, counsel, that implementation of those attitudes, that inculcation of those attitudes into the heart of the child, of them seeing continually a deep and abiding respect of the husband for the wife and the wife for the husband. That'll bring us to some of the questions that we have here. That the child will look into a home where God, where country, I know that really sounds corny, country, but there was much talk in Israel. You know, 
about if I forget Israel, then let my hand forget its skills. If I forget where you, then let my... See, there was a thought there about the country. Well, there's a right place to honor the country in which you live. It isn't like my country, right or wrong, my country. You know, no, but it's my country. It's a place to honor the president, honor the governors, honor the mayor, honor the police, honor the... And then those attitudes will be put into the heart of that child. And if at any point the child starts to go away from that, then you have what to bring them into line. Now, the Bible says the rod and reproof give wisdom. All right. Here's the child starting to err from the right way. All right. What does it say? We're, now, we have to give wisdom to that child. We have two things, and really only two things. See, evidently you've already given them a commandment. Evidently you've already given instruction, assuming you have. Evidently you've already said, here's what the Word of God says. Evidently you've already said, here's this, that, and the other thing. Now what do you have then, when the child starts to err from the right way, what do you have to give it wisdom? Or in other words, bring it into right way. What is it? And then finally what? The rod. Yeah, see. Now that may be a whack on the seat, or it may in fact be a belt. Whatever. I remember John, one point in his life, I had to use my belt. He was just getting where he wouldn't hear anything. And he said, I don't want to be spanked. I said, what'd you do it for? He said, because I wanted to do it, but I don't want to get spanked. See, I mean, he had a very clear thing. He wanted to do this, foolishness, but he didn't want this. Gradually, see, over the years, and I say, all the mistakes I made, yet I'm going to tell you something. We trained right values into him. Even though I made a lot of mistakes with it, but the mistakes disappeared by grace. The right values remain. Now the right values have taken place. Now he's walking straight. Train up a child in the way he should go when he is old, not depart from it. Now no one here has to have an experience like I had with my two sons of seeing them depart. I had wrong attitudes, didn't know how to change them at that point. You don't have to let those attitudes remain in you like I did over so many years. And as a matter of fact, they in fact are not. I've seen those marvelous changes of grace in your hearts that didn't take place in Daisy's heart and my heart for 20 years after we were saved, see? but not, not in yours. But unless those things are properly put in the heart of a child, then a child will bring you to grief and shame. And I'm just thinking recently, Fred Muster had to ask a man to step down from eldership, who at one time was the Assembly of God preachers, and the man had to get up and resign his position as a preacher. His children had completely gotten out of line. They would no longer hear him. They were riotous in their behavior, and he simply had to step aside. Rightly so. Nothing else you can do. See, my own life, when my children were really out of it, just created great and terrible problems in my ministry. See, I'm just telling you that. Now, this is the time to get your children in a right frame of mind to protect your ministries in the future, that they don't get out of line. Because they'll drive you out of the ministry. I just tell you, they, they will. See, and what it's really saying is, if you don't really know how to use the rod and reproof and instruction and commandment and discipline training to bring your children in line, then the question it asks is what? How can you take care of the church of God? Because is that not what you're doing? You're taking babes in Christ, and you're bringing them finally in the line to walk as men and women of God. Same principle exactly. Okay. Just like I said, we either correct ourselves... So you can either receive that from Daisy and myself or from each other as well, or you will receive it from the people.
just a matter of time. So they'll flat out tell you, just buzz off. I don't want you around. They will. I mean, you just, when they're young, they won't. When they get older, they just get tougher. They say, don't come around. Yeah, I, I tell you, it will happen that way. And we don't want it to happen. Not a one of you. I want curtailed in your ministries at all. See, so if you got any problems that way, remember you have these tools. And George, you were asking me a question. What do you do when you have older children? Exactly the same principles will work with them. It's only more difficult. It's harder to get. Begin talking in your home as much as you can. These things and nothing opposing those things. In other words, when you lie down, you talk about it. When you sit down, you talk about it. When you stand up, when you walk with your child, say, so why do you do this? I do this because this. The mother says, I do this because of this. See, constantly instructing a child with the Word of God. That's the whole part. Constantly instructing a child with the Word of God. Now, it doesn't mean that's all you talk to them about. But you're bringing it in this way and 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 this way. And he's hearing it. Because the Word of God, the Bible says, is alive. Dynamic. It penetrates to the deepest part of the being and there transforms a life. All right. Now then, we're constantly bringing in, see, and here's where it's important to establish that idea of respect where we're saying not only the Word of God says this or I say to you, but we need to call in third-party authority that's human. Now, what is third-party authority? The elders, the older people, the... And we begin to refer to their pronouncements respectfully. See, we say, well, the president says, the mayor says, the police say, this is the right thing that the elders say, this is... And they begin to hear that and say, oh, the elders say right things. The police say right things. The mayor says right things. The, now, see, these are things we need to train ourselves in because in our minds, see, we're not thinking when we're saying this that we're putting attitudes in the heart of our children. But in fact, we really are. They're picking up all of those attitudes from us. And what attitudes are they? They're really our own attitudes. We're going to get them reflected in the lives of those children. Okay, so now those are the weapons, the commandments of God, the instruction from like the book of Proverbs, the New Testament, so forth, the example that you yourself lead, counsel. For instance, George, what your father taught you, what you may have heard from him of his father. My father said, our grandfather said, see, these are powerful words to a child. Oh, you mean, they hear, they hear that, very important to them. All right. Traditions, very important that we establish tradition. We're going to be talking about that very shortly now. Admonishment, to admonish a child that's not correct. This works also with grown-ups. At the Elk River house, now here's grown-up Christians, pretty well grown-up. They really are. But we set a goal for ourselves of $1,320 a week. That was a very low goal. Now it's up around 2200 something like that. But in those days, 1320 that's like a pretty good goal to make. And it was 20 people. So it wasn't hard to make, but was, for them, they thought it was really, really a heavy goal to make. $1,320. And I said, okay, now we have to go at making that goal. See, if we're saying we're going to make $1,320, we must make $1,320. So that means we're going to work evenings or Saturdays or whatever we have to do to make that money. And we're going to put up or shut up. See, 1320 that's the goal. All right, so the first week came in, and I think it was Friday or Thursday night or something like that, but it was a full week. And Gene Lotus got up and he said, 
This week we made $784, and he said, I, I want to commend every one of you on a job well done. And I said, stop, Gene, right now. I said, this is not a job well done. This is not acceptable behavior. We said we would make $1,320. We said we'd work nights if we had to, or we'd work weekends if we have to. $1,320, this is not acceptable behavior. Now let's put up or shut up. All right, now what was this? This is admonishment and correction. See, if I said, yeah, yeah, that's, that's right, that's pretty good behavior, you know what would have happened? That would have 720 would have been the most they'd ever made. The next week, they'd have made 620, 524, 23, 23, the whole thing fell apart. And then they said something like, uh, and I'm hearing that some other people are beginning to say this in certain areas of the ministry, but we're not sure the Lord wants to prosper us. Well, sure, if you're allowed to drop down lower and lower, you're going to come to those attitudes. No, somebody in authority must set what is the proper attitude. I said, that's not acceptable behavior. Now you see, they're up earning 21, 22, 2300. Now if I say, well, let's go back to 13, do I say 1320? What are you talking about 1320? See, but there was a time when 1320 was like way up there. Okay. Now, if that had not worked, I would have used punishment. Now, I wouldn't have got up and said, okay, Gene Lotus, get over my knee. I'm going to beat you with a board. <laughs> what would I have done? I'd have got pretty heavy. I'd have got pretty heavy with words. I'd say, man, I'm going to tell you something. You came here to be trained by me. And you came here to be discipled. Now, discipleship means a wholehearted follower of. And I'm saying the Word of God says we're to prosper. We are not prospering. And I don't want you to give me any two-sided ideas about what you're thinking. You know, well, maybe this, maybe this. No, that's not right. Now, we set a goal for ourselves. I want that goal reached. Now, do you think I would have done that? I can tell you I would have. And I'll tell you what would have happened. They'd have gone out there feeling bad. They'd have felt blue. They'd have felt all down in the mouth. They'd have worked their heads off, brought in the money the next week and say, Man, we got 1500 I'd say. Praise God! Hallelujah, let's go! And they'd all be happy, and they would forget all about the punishment in the joy of having attained the goal. Now, I'm saying, without that, they fall down to nothing, see? Now, the same thing is true when you have to minister a heavy sermon. I remember one time out at the ranch. Man, there were guys talking about, I won't cut my hair, I won't get a shave, I won't uh, do this, nobody's going to make me go to work, nobody's going to do it. And man, I stood up one night and I said, now look, you're right. Nobody's going to make you shave and nobody's going to make you get a haircut. But I'm telling you, there's some of you fellas that stand right here and see this ministry grow straight down the drain while you're draining us dry. You'll eat our food, you'll drink our beverages, you'll sleep in our beds, you'll use up our heat, and you tell me you won't work. Well, then I want to tell you, make it easy on everybody. Move on down the road or get yourself a job because that's the way it's going to be. This ministry is not going down the drain. Now, you know what happened? The next morning, there was a revelation. It was okay to get a haircut. It was okay to shave. It was okay to get out and get a job. Very few people left. Some did, but most did not. And the ministry went on and survived. Now, there's been several times I've had to use this one. Why? To inculcate this into a bunch of 21-year-old babies who had no right attitudes toward anything. They wouldn't support, they wouldn't pay, they wouldn't pray, they wouldn't play, they wouldn't do anything. Now, strong men of God and women of God everywhere, see.